I next met with Dr. Ola Landgren to discuss myeloma papers from ASH, and to begin, he commented on a paper that updated a landmark study presented initially at ASH 2013. The abstract presented by Hulin et al., the first study, was an update on what was presented at the previous ASH meeting. They used continuous lenalidomide dexamethasone, low-dose dexamethasone, versus a defined duration of lenalidomide with a defined number of cycles with low-dose dexamethasone. And the third arm was with a defined duration of melphalanprednisone and thalidomide. Still in Europe, melphalanprednisone and thalidomide is the standard. In the first presentation they had at the previous ASH meeting, they showed that continued lenalidomide and low-dose dexamethasone was associated with a better progression-free and overall survival. At this most recent ASH meeting, they had an updated presentation in this abstract, and what they focused on this time was to stratify their results by age. Specifically, they looked at patients diagnosed above and below the age of 75. I think this is an important study. It's large, it's randomized. Many patients with myeloma are above the age of 75. In fact, the average age of onset is around 70. So it's a very relevant question. What they show in this study is that all the results that they were looking at, the responses, the duration of the responses, the progression-free, and the overall survival, they were very similar, independent of age. To me, this is what I would have expected, but of course, the most important thing is to actually have the data. I think we are facing a situation now in the myeloma treatment field where we have access to effective drugs that are not intense. I think we have to stop discriminating patients' therapy based on age. If 50 is the new 30, then 70 is the new 50. We have to give patients above the age of 75 access to the right therapies. You know, I was just kind of reflecting back on that because, as you say, the thinking when it was first presented last year was, okay, this is relevant to Europe and maybe they'll move away from malfalan-based regimens. But actually, the RD short-term really... I don't think it was better than the melphalan arm. It was really the extension that we saw the big difference. And I kind of wonder whether or not, was there any kind of maintenance used in the melphalan arm? No, the melphalan arm was defined in time. And so was this restricted lenalidomide, low-dose dexamethasone. And they had the same duration. So actually, when I think about it, is this sort of support for using RD, or is it more support for using continuous therapy? I think in this particular study, because we don't have a continuous therapy after a defined malphalanprednisone thalidomide dosing, we don't know the answer to your question. I think if I were to extrapolate, I do think that continuous therapy maybe is the strongest readout from these results. So I guess you could envision that you could use melphalanprednisone thalidomide and then continue with something else. But on the other hand, lenalidomide and low-dose dexamethasone is a pretty tolerable therapy. So you have to factor in a lot of other aspects as well. What about the issue of triple therapy in older patients? And the question that was raised, there's a New England Journal article a few years ago 
Antonio Palumbo and Ken Anderson, where they proposed, you know, sort of preemptive dose reductions in the elderly. How do you approach 75, 80, 85-year-old patients outside a trial in your own setting? And if you do use triple therapy, what do you do about the dosing? Now uh, we are actually, I think, going over to the next abstract you had on this list of abstracts we wanted to talk about. And that's the Corde et al. Minimal Residual Disease Testing in Newly Diagnosed Multiple Myeloma Patients. This study was based on triple combination, cofilzomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone. So we're talking about lenalidomide, dexamethasone with the addition of a third drug, the proteasome inhibitor, cofilzomib. So here we have 45 newly diagnosed patients, and there was no discrimination by age in this study because there was no high-dose malfalan or autologous stem cell transplant included in the study, so any age group could go on. And this is a study where I was the PI and the senior author of the presentation. I can tell you that around half the patients out of these 45 were above the age of 65, and we looked specifically at the data by age. And if anything, the results were not inferior for older. They, in fact, were slightly better for older patients. Now, in this study, do you have any patients who are like 80 plus, for example? The oldest patient on this study started at the age of 88. Wow. Now, you have, of course, to be careful when you look at the study like this because it's a clinical trial. And clinical trials always have inherent limitations in that they have eligibility criteria. So if you're 88 years old and you go on a trial, you're a pretty healthy 88-year-old. But I do think that it actually sends a very important message in that we should not look at age as the discriminator. We should look at the health status of the individual. If you are in good shape, it doesn't matter what age you have, and you should not be discriminated. You should be able to get access to good therapy. And these studies show that you actually can reach a complete response in a very high proportion of patients. It was around 60 or 70% of the patients that reach a complete response. And that was not different by age. But again, you know, your point about using optimal therapy, you know, is well taken. But again, in terms of dosing, you have, you know, not as good renal function, etc. Do you, for example, in this study, you gave the exact same dosing to the 88-year-old? Yes, it was 36 milligrams per meter square of cofilzomib, which is higher than the FDA registered dosing. That's 27 milligrams per meter square. But as you're well aware, there are multiple studies ongoing at this time where doses in the range of 50 or 70 or even higher are being evaluated, and they seem to be very well working. And there is another abstract I think we're going to talk about today that uses these higher doses, and they seem to work out very well. So I'm curious about your thoughts on Abstract 175 by Dr. Palumbo. Obviously, you're very interested in the CRD regimen. It's now being studied in a huge randomized trial. But he talked about carfilzomib cyclophosphamide index, sort of a cyborg D with carfilzomib. And we've seen data on this before. What was presented here? This is a study using cofilzomib with cyclophosphamide and dexamethasone. And as you point out, it's a variant to the Cyborg-D that has been used. Cyborg-D has never been developed in a large study, but has been found among various groups to 
be a combination that works. So people have started implementing it, but there is really not a whole lot of data to back that combination up. So what they did in this study was that they used the combination with bortezomib, cyclophosphamide, and dexamethasone as the framework, and they replaced the bortezomib with cofilzomib. They used the once-a-week dosing for cofilzomib, and that was day 1, 8, and 15. And I think what they show here is clearly interesting. It shows that you can deliver this therapy with the cofilzomib once a week, and they gave 70 milligrams per meter square. So that's about twice as high as we talked about before in the setting of the study with cofilzomib lenalidomide dexamethasone. I do think in the cofilzomib lenalidomide dexamethasone you probably could do the similar dosing, but that has just not been developed yet. So I'm not saying that it doesn't work with the other combination. This is just where we are right now in terms of data. So anyway, they show that if you do this combination, you have, after four cycles, 83% of the patients have a partial response or better. 39% of the patients had a very good partial response or better. And 22% had a complete response or better. So if I look at these, these are preliminary data. This after four cycles, these numbers I just gave you. I think they are slightly less good than the combination with cofilzomib and lenalidomide and dexamethasone. But on the other hand, cyclophosphamide is a much cheaper drug. And also the use of lenalidomide for upfront treatment in certain parts of the world, such as Europe, is not approved for that. So I do think that this combination could be something of major interest in many instances. And it could also be used in countries where lenalidomide is approved. If there are reasons, you could have, for example, renal dysfunction that would limit the use of lenalidomide. So they got maintenance therapy indefinitely? Another feature of this study that's kind of a little bit unique to the study, the study has, like any study, has strengths and weaknesses. A weakness is that it's a relatively small studies, only 28 patients. So it's a small study. It's a phase 1-2 trial. But the new feature of this study is that after they had delivered these nine cycles, they used the corfilzomib drug as the maintenance, and they gave it day 1, 8, and 15. So that has not really been shown in many other studies. I think that's interesting to use that drug as a maintenance therapy. Seems like, in general, you're mentioning using it once a week. And it seems like from a convenience point of view, that would be a big step forward. Is that something you ever do in your practice? At this point, we use the twice-a-week dosing because that's what is approved by the FDA, and that's where all the strong data currently is. But I do think that based on preliminary data that is coming out as we speak, it seems that the once a week with a little higher dose once a week could be equal to a lower dose of twice a week. So I do think that it's very likely that we soon will switch over to once a week. And that would be a major improvement for patients because coming into the clinic twice a week, of course, impacts your lifestyle quite a lot. And we'll talk later about some of the oral proteasome inhibitors. And it seems like there, if you really want to get into long-term therapy, you really start to see a big advantage. Yes. And also relevant to the point we were talking about before in terms of older people, I note that the median age of the patients in this study was 74. So it kind of supports what you were saying about triple therapy in older patients. 
Yeah, I think my interpretation, if I not look at one study only, if I kind of merge information from multiple studies, I think there is really strong support from this ASH meeting to support the statement that it's a turning point. We have reached a new point in the treatment of myeloma. We can use these new effective non-toxic, non-intense therapies across the board by age groups. For patients who are still suffering from major comorbidities, there may be reasons why we cannot do that. But for the average patient who is in good shape, age is no longer a limiting factor. And I think that using three drugs, there is strong precedence for that for upfront. And then one may go down to fewer drugs for toxicity and convenience, quality of life reasons. So we were talking before about your study on CRD and the data that you all presented at ASH on MRD in that study. But the other big study, the one-arm study that people had their eyes on for the last couple of years is the group led by Dr. Jack Bobiak. And they also reported in Abstract 2127 some data on MRD in their patients. Can you comment on that? This was the study that defined a dose of 36 milligrams per meter square, day 1, 2, 8, 9, 15, 16, which is exactly the same dose that we used in our study and was used in several other studies. And they used that in combination with lenalidomide and dexamethasone. The difference between this study and our study was that they gave it for two years. In our study, we gave it for eight months. They had a little bit of an altered dosing regime after 24 months in their study, they gave corfilzomib day 1 to 15, 16. So they continued also with very dose-intense treatment. And we talked about the need for coming in to the clinic and receive these infusions. In our study, we did not use that combination for the extended therapy. We used lenalidomide 10 milligrams, so oral therapy, single drug. So there are, I would say, quite big differences between the studies. They used a 10-color multi-color flow cytometry, and they also used next-generation sequencing in this study looking at minimal residual disease. They concluded that being negative by next-generation sequencing was better than being negative by the flow cytometry only, and they reported that to be associated with a better progression-free survival. And that's consistent with what we found in our study. So pretty much mirroring the same thing that you saw. How about the presentation by Keith Stewart of the ASPIRE trial? To me, this is one of the most interesting papers at ASH. To me, this is the number one message from ASH for multiple myeloma in 2014. This is a large randomized phase three trial it includes 792 patients from 20 countries, and they were randomized to cofilzomib, lenalidomide, dexamethasone versus lenalidomide and dexamethasone. There is a lot of information, of course, in a large study like this, but I think the kind of key punchlines are the deep responses. These are patients that have relapsed multiple myeloma, one to three prior lines of therapy, and yet we see that 31 percent of the patients reach a complete response. That is an unprecedented high number. And that's actually stringent complete response, and that compares to 9% with just the RD. 
That's correct. So if we just think about multiple myeloma drug development five years ago, 10 years ago, these numbers would be very impressive even in the newly diagnosed setting. So here we have patients with relapse disease with one to three prior lines, on average two prior regimens, and we see this extremely high response rate, deep responses. And of course, the key question is, does it matter in terms of the duration of this? And the answer is absolutely yes. So we see 26 months progression-free survival in the three-drug combination versus 17.6 months in the two-drug combination. So just using very simple language here, patients who are on three drugs, they can be without disease becoming active for an additional half to one year. That's a very impressive finding. You know, when I first heard about this study, I kind of wasn't really sure why they did it and why everybody was excited about it. It seemed like it would have made more sense to look at it up front. And I'm not even sure, I don't think even RVD's been looked at it in a phase three trial like this up front. What do you see as the implications of this study, both in terms of upfront therapy, but also in relapse disease? I think we kind of had this model of a palliative you know, model, one drug at a time. Is this and other data causing you to rethink that? As you point out, the combination with borcizumib and lenalidomide and dexamethasone, that was never tested in a large phase three trial, but that has become, in the United States, one of the standard therapies. Here we now have a combination with two versus three drugs for relapse patients. This is the randomized phase three trial we're looking at. What do we have in terms of large studies in the newly diagnosed setting? There is an ongoing study in the United States using potisimib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone versus cofilzimib, lenalidomide, dexamethasone. That study is ongoing. So when that study comes out, we will have data to compare these two regimens. But at this moment, the data that we have for the newly diagnosed patients with this combination with the three drugs, that's the Jakubowiak study, and that's the study that we did at the NCI that is not yet published. Those are the two studies their sample size 53 patients for the Jakubowiak study and 45 for the study we did at NCI. I do think having two single arm studies showing the same thing is very strong. But I guess the gold standard is still to have a randomized phase three trial, but we still have these two phase two trials. And this regimen is already in the NCCN guidelines. So it is in the compendia, and it's one of the recommended therapies for newly diagnosed patients. I'm curious how you approach relapse refractory disease, and are you still you know, trying to sort of drive the tumor down as far as you can? Are you thinking more about you know, two or three agents, or more you know, one agent at a time in kind of a palliative mode? So as you are well aware, there are different schools of thought in my opinion, I think, as I have said already, in the treatment of myeloma, we now have access to effective non-intense therapies. We also have access to a lot of different drugs. This is a game changer. I think based on these facts, I would not save the best drugs for later. I would use them up front. And that's based on these data we're looking at here. Driving down the disease and keeping it away seems to translate into the best outcome. So that's my school of thought. I think for newly diagnosed patients, I would not compromise unless I had to. 
I would give three. I would, I think in the future, in the near future, even start thinking about four drugs. To me, two drugs is not what I would advocate for. And for relapse patients, I think this study we're looking at, this is a large study. It's based on 792 patients from 20 countries. It clearly shows these benefits have to one year longer progression-free survival. And although it didn't meet the predefined p-value, the overall survival, there was a 20% lower risk of dying. So I think for newly diagnosed and for relapse disease, my take based on data we have is that we shall deliver the best therapies. So I'm not a proponent of this risk-adapted therapy. I think that's a very pessimistic way of thinking. I think it's a way of thinking where you say that for patients who have bad disease, you must give good therapy, while for the others, it's not needed, it doesn't matter. I think the positive way of thinking is that for those patients who have the less aggressive disease, they have much greater opportunity to have a good outcome if you give them the best therapy. And that's what I think we are seeing here. I think this is going to change. How about abstract 4748? There's been a lot of discussion. I've chatted with you a lot about your experience with carfilzomib and sort of the dyspnea syndrome that's been observed and the question of cardiovascular impact. This study tried to look at that. Yeah, so this is a study, it's a phase two trial. They use different approaches to evaluate the impact on the cardiovascular symptoms and the cardiovascular system overall. And they use blood tests and they use the blood test ProBNP which is one of the tests that cardiologists use to measure cardiac failure, or we use it in myeloma patients to see if there is any elevation that would be indicative of amyloid in patients with amyloid. It's part of the workup to determine the degree of the disease. So it's a test that we are used to order for the purpose of evaluating the heart. And they use this after they have given cofilzomib to these patients, and they see that it goes up after you have given cofilzomib. I think that the drug seems to trigger that. That's based on my personal experience as well. But I also think that we give this drug together with fluid. And fluid, if you give fluid to any person for any reason, you probably have increased of your pro-BMP. And that was not evaluated in this study. There were five out of the 62 patients in this series that had cardiac event. There were four with a decrease in the ejection fraction that was determined by an echo. And they said that they considered them to be probably attributed to cofilzomib in three of these patients. So I think it suggests that there is some cardiovascular signal from this drug which is what other groups have found. But I also think to balance it, in the big study we talked about, the ASPIRE trial, when they looked at cardiovascular events in the lenalidomide dexamethasone versus cofilzomib lenalidomide dexamethasone, this is a prospective randomized trial, there was no difference in cardiovascular adverse outcomes. And Keith Stewart, who was the last author of this abstract we are talking about now, he was the lead author for the ASPIRE trial. And he said at ASH that in the ASPIRE trial, there is really no data to support that cofilzomib is significantly associated with cardiovascular outcomes in this large ASPIRE trial. So although they pick up these details here, in the big study, they didn't. So why is that? I don't know. Maybe there is a sampling error here. They did find a couple of cardiovascular events in the big study also. But again, then 
directly compared to lenalidomide dexamethasone. So looking at small series, if you only look at one regimen, you don't know if you're picking up something that's related to a given therapy or if it's due to the disease. It's a limitation. So have similar studies been done with other proteasome inhibitors, specifically bortezomib? Does bortezomib cause this effect at all? I don't think there is any systematic evaluation when it comes to cardiovascular outcomes and bortezomib at this point. There are smaller series. I would like to address that you have to be very cautious when you look at these things because they are small series. How were the patients identified? Did they have any underlying cardiovascular disease? Also, you don't compare with any other drugs. It's very, very risky to take a group of patients that someone has picked by themselves and you know very little about the patients and there is no comparison. It's very hard to tell what we actually are looking at. How about the paper looking at the other oral proteasome here we've heard a lot about over the last few years, exazimib, again, a structure related to bortezomib. So in abstract 82, this was presented by Shadi Kumar. In this very abstract, he looked at the long-term use of exazimib maintenance, and it was based on therapy that was given with exazimib and lenalidomide and dexamethasone as a combination therapy. And then now they looked at the continued therapy. There were 50 patients that were enrolled in this phase two, and they showed that if you continue with the exasimib, they had followed them for up to one and a half year. They conclude that it was very well tolerated and it improved the responses after the three drug combination. And it also contributes to durable responses with a median of two years. I think this is extremely important. There is evidence, I think, to say that it will provide us with another oral maintenance drug beyond lenalidomide, we now have an oral proteasome inhibitor. I think this is important. We need, of course, larger series, longer follow-up, but I think it's important. From your point of view, is there enough data available right now that you'd like to be able to use this drug? The drug is not yet approved, so it cannot be prescribed outside clinical trials. There are ongoing studies comparing exasomib, lenalidomide, dexamethasone, versus lenalidomide dexamethasone in a relapsed setting. So when they will read out, if they are successful, then the drug will become available. And I do think that this drug shows a lot of promise. So let me ask you about abstract 303 and 304. We were talking about triplet therapy in relapse refractory disease. 303 looked at pomalidomide cyclophosphamide index and the 304 pomalidomide bortezomib index. What about these papers? So we have the new drugs. We have cofilzomib, we have pomalidomide. And we first talked about cofilzomib, lenalidomide, dexamethasone. Now we're talking about pomalidomide. So that's the imid being the newer one. And then in combination with cyclophosphamide and dexamethasone. This study was a phase two trial that was targeting patients with relapse and refractory multiple myeloma. So typical for these types of studies, the sample sizes are relatively small. It's 36 patients and they were randomized to arm B and then there were 34 patients randomized to an arm C in this study. And the arm B was pomalidomide dexamethasone and the arm C was cyclophosphamide, pomalidomide and dexamethasone. 
and they concluded that the combination of the three drugs translated into a better both response rate and progression-free survival rate. So it's kind of the same as we have already talked about. If you have two drugs with an imid dexamethasone, or you have an imidexamethasone with a protosome inhibitor, that the three-drug combination takes you to deeper response and it lasts longer. Here we now have an imidexamethasone with or without cyclophosphamide. It's the same thing. The depth of the responses here are less profound compared to the combination with the protosome inhibitor. I think the Aspire trial, that's a very high bar. That's going to be hard to beat with any of these older drugs. So I think it's another option for patients who don't have access to cofilzomib, or if there's a reason to not give it, there could be several reasons for that. Then now you have another option. You could do pomalidomide, cyclophosphamide, and dexamethasone. You mentioned before the idea that maybe you're going to be moving from three to four drug regimens, and I was going to ask you, is the fourth drug going to be a monoclonal antibody? Yeah, so that's what I was alluding to, and there were a couple of presentations at the meeting Right. We've been waiting for data from the elituzumab lenalidomide phase 3 study, but it actually saw more on the anti-CD38 agent daratumumab. From my perspective, I think the CD38 as a target is the most exciting class of drugs that we have in myeloma at this moment. The two drugs we are talking about here, daratumumab and the SOR compound, they both target this CD38 antigen. And what we have seen so far is that they seem to have very good response rates, even in patients with prior therapy. They also seem to be very tolerable in terms of safety. What we heard at this meeting in the abstract 176, they used in a phase 1b study daratumumab in combination with backbone regimens. And this is, I think, a very creative way of exploring the antibody therapy in various settings of myeloma therapy. So they had bortezomib and dexamethasone. They had bortezomib thalidomide dexamethasone. They had bortezomib melphalan and prednisone in this study. And they show that it's very well tolerated. That's what they found in this phase 1b study. And I think from these preliminary responses they are coming up with, it really sets the stage for combining this drug with various backbones for multiple myeloma. And I guess I've heard people talk about this concept of monoclonal antibody being kind of like the rituximab of myeloma. And of course, with lymphoma, rituximab kind of gets combined with just pretty much everything. Is that kind of where you see this heading? Yeah. And that's how this study was set up. I actually missed to say that they also used the pomalidomide and dexamethasone in this study as another backbone, which is, of course, important. So yes, this study was set up to see how you could combine this antibody with different types of already established regimens. So you're trying to seek safety data, and then based on what you see in terms of preliminary signals, you can then pick your favorite backbone and move forward with that. So that's what this study shows. So I do think the combination of three drugs, we already talked about imid, proteasome inhibitor, and low-dose dexamethasone, in my mind, from the ASPIRE study and from emerging data from other phase two studies. I mentioned the Jakubowiak and the NCI study, and also there is ongoing randomized study. 
I think we'll establish that as the standard way of treating patients with myeloma, newly diagnosed and early relapsed. And with these data from these CD38 antibodies, I can see that that could become the fourth drug that will be added. And that could probably be situations where maybe one of the other three drugs for various reasons could be left out and it could be replaced by the CD38 antibody. But I think there will be many patients treated with four drugs in the near future. How about this paper 84 looking at daratumumab with lenalidomide index? So it's an ongoing phase 1-2 trial, and they show that they had a 75% partial response or better. So if you think about lenalidomide and dexamethasone, usually that takes only 15 or so percent of patients into a complete response. They show that if you add this monoclonal antibody, the CD38, to lenalidomide and dexamethasone, you have 75% of patients reaching a partial response or better. And that's pretty good. You have a very tolerable regimen. I do personally still argue that if you were to add a proteasome inhibitor, you could have close to 75% of patients into a complete response. So why would you not go there if you could? And then, of course, the question is what happened if you added the CD38 antibody on top of that? There are, of course, a lot of aspects that need to be considered. It's very expensive therapy. It's also therapy that requires intravenous infusions, so it impacts the patient's quality of life. But I do think for a newly diagnosed patient, it may be worth going for a therapy that really can deliver deep responses if you want to maintain long benefit from the therapy. Of course, that's up to the individual patient to decide. But that's my perspective here. So there were a couple of papers presenting on smoldering myeloma, both follow-ups, one the Mateos series and the other yours. Can you talk about that? The Mateos update was based on the New England Journal of Medicine paper published in 2012. They had treated in that series 60 patients with lenalidomide and dexamethasone, followed by two years of lenalidomide maintenance And then there were 60 patients that were followed without any therapy. And they showed in the study published in the New England Journal in 2012 that progression-free and overall survival was significantly better for the treatment arm versus the observation arm. What they did here was that they continued to follow these patients and they had a median follow-up of 64 months. And they showed that the progression to symptomatic disease occurred in 23% of the patients with lenalidomide dexamethasone. And that should be compared with 85% for the patients in the observation arm. So that's, of course, highly significant. Also, they looked at the treatment of these patients. And there was no evidence that when you treat patients on the treatment arm that they had an inferior response to treatment. They also additionally looked at secondary primary malignancies, and there were four of those reported in the lenalidomide and dexamethasone arm, and there was one in the observation group. I would like to caution when you hear four versus one, that does not tell you how many patients were at risk. So if patients do not survive, of course, there will be fewer potential events. So these numbers are very similar. So the bottom line here is that with a long-term follow-up, lenalidomide and dexamethasone as an early treatment in the high-risk smoldering patients continues to show significant reduction both in progression-free survival 
as well as overall survival. And there is no evidence that you induce more resistant disease later. I think this is very important. How about your paper on CRD? I think this randomized phase three trial from Mateos intellectually sets the stage for what we have been talking about, three drug combinations now in the setting of high-risk small ring. And that's exactly what this phase two trial from the NCI was designed to look at. And I presented this at ASH. It's a pilot study, so it only includes 12 patients. They received 36 milligrams per meter square of corfilzomib. They won 2, 8, 9, 15, 16. Lenalidomide was given every day, 21 days in a row, and then one week off, and low-dose dexamethasone. All patients received this for eight cycles, and then they had two years of lenalidomide extended dosing and maintenance, 10 milligrams. What the study shows is that all patients, 100% of the patients, achieve a complete response or better. And out of these patients, 11 of them are negative for minimal residual disease using multicolor flow cytometry. There were 12 patients treated, 11 were negative with multicolor flow cytometry, 10 patients were negative with next-generation sequencing for minimal residual disease. So one of those two patients that were positive was the patient who was positive by flow, but then there was one additional patient that was positive with the sequencing. So here we have now early treatment results with three drug combination, carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and low-dose dexamethasone, taking 100% of patients into complete response in the setting of high-risk smoldering. And 11 out of 12 were negative by flow cytometry for MRD, and 10 out of 12 were negative by next-generation sequencing. If we put that head-to-head, we have to be cautious comparing across studies, but if we put it head-to-head to the Spanish study showing that lenalidomide dexamethasone took 14% of patients into complete response after a combination of nine cycles of lenalidomide and dexamethasone, 14% versus 100%. And if we then put it head-to-head with the Aspire trial showing the depth of response for relapse patients and how that also was different for three versus two drugs, the same drugs we're talking about. And we have the other studies showing progression-free in overall survival. It's fascinating to think if that same rule applies to the setting of high-risk smoldering, that would be a huge readout here. But it's a small study, and we don't yet have the long-term follow-up. What's your approach outside of trial setting in your own practice to patients with smoldering disease? At this time, I don't treat patients with high-risk smoldering outside trials. I try to open up several new trials and offer patients very careful monitoring I can see that if these data continue to emerge, I think we may start offering therapy outside trials. But for right now, we offer only therapy on our trials. 